Thank you for joining us for this season of We Will Flourish. Conversations and stories of flourishing together in Oklahoma City. We Will Flourish is not a newsreel of current events or knowledge base of data or statistics. Rather, it is a tapestry woven from human stories and perspectives, helping us both to celebrate our successes as a city and learn from our mistakes. In this season of We Will Flourish, we are taking time to unpack flourishing as a city from a personal perspective. You're dealing with generations of people who have a totally different way of relating to the social institutions that are connected to human flourishing. So, John Mark, you're mentioning, uh, as you were describing the story about entering into suffering. And so when I think about suffering, I think about the word lament. So in this work of racial reconciliation, seeking justice, what, what is that tension balance of lament and also joy? I, I don't necessarily try to balance it. Mm. I, I'm a person who kind of thinks, because I have a lot of children, like the idea of everything getting its fair cut is just not reality. <laughs> so I think mm. more of whose turn is it? Mm. <laughs> whose turn is it right now? And so when I think of lament, um, lament to me is something that follows an awakening. Mm. Um, we wake up and we realize something and then we uh, we realize that it's broken, that there's pain, mm-hmm. that there's suffering, and we lean into that pain and suffering. We don't observe it from afar. My husband has this phrase, um, we don't spectate, we participate. So we don't step back oh. and just kind of stand on the outside. We step into it and participate in celebration or in suffering. So, um, and I don't think that we can experience the height of joy if we don't understand the depth of lament. Mm -hmm. It almost feels, you know, like we just want to be happy and hopeful and positive all the time. And, um, but lament is that crushing that allows some beautiful wine to flow out of our lives. And um, so I don't necessarily try to balance that. I just is it time to lament? And when it's time, you give it its space and you honor its role in turning us toward hope. Um, And for me, that really looks like, you know, just crying out an honest, authentic embrace of pain and suffering, and then becoming aware that as I lament, I'm not lamenting, you know, just into nothingness, that there is someone who hears that mm-hmm. cry and is able to do something with it. Um, and so, um, and that's out of a responsive relationship with my maker, but it's also what I expect of myself, that I don't listen and hear and observe um, the lament of others without response. So, and then when it's time to celebrate and party, I'm all for that too, because <laughs> I love a good party. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, but I and the ability to dance mm. out of mourning mm. um, makes the dance so much sweeter mm-hmm. and so much um, more both grounded and feet on the ground and like full of wonder and this heavenward lift at the same time because it, you know, he's our mourning has turned to dancing instead of we're just dancing all the time. 
I give space to lament when it's its turn. And I think we live in a time where it is, uh, we're seeing expressions of pain, you know, walking down the street, marching down the street, crying out to be heard because there has been such silence and deafness. And I think that we've entered into the possibility of a new awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes our eyes get opened and then we're like, let me hurry and shut them again. Let me, you know, or someone else is like, no, you're not really seeing that. Let me mm. close your eyelids. And I think that goes back to that uh, unwillingness to like acknowledge the brokenness. Mm-hmm. It just feels safer and less vulnerable to ignore it sometimes and to discount it and to silence it. But um, I think that's where the right. speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves come in um, to play. And so, and sometimes that's speaking up for ourselves too. Um, certainly in my situation where I'm bridging often relationally, but I'm also, you know, raising six black sons in America. Mm. And for me, that is, uh, um, I, I have to enter into a recognition, recognition of their lament mm. and, mm. um, of their pain and and then try to figure out what do we do with that? What do we do with that as a family, as a household, and then as a city and as a nation? All of those things kind of play out for me from the household out. Mm-hmm. Everything Scotia just said is great. <laughs> I like all that. And, you know, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted. And a really high percentage of the Hebrew scriptures is lament. So for me, that raises the question, why? Why? And I think Scotia just named it. I can say from my personal experience, the story I told a little while ago, I sort of grieved for my friend Jose, but it wasn't until years later when I was looking at Irene's blistered feet and hearing the prayer of the farm workers struggle that really something broke loose. And Mm. I really wept for him for the first time that night. Mm. And I think a couple things happened. I moved from some emotion, some pain that I had repressed to like letting it out in a way that created new empathy. And two, I also was moving from anger to grief and the way that could birth creative love. So that experience really was a turning point to advocacy related to this issue. And um, it makes me think of um, Emmanuel Katongale and Chris Rice wrote a book called Reconciling All Things. And part of what they're talking about, if we want to be reconcilers, they name a handful of disciplines we need to learn. And one of them is what they call the discipline of lament, which they define as the spiritual discipline of naming the brokenness of the world, including our own brokenness and the church's complicity in that brokenness. Mm. So as I think about that in terms of reconciliation conversations in a place like Oklahoma, sometimes we feel stuck on the conversation. We want to talk about being good neighbors. We want to talk about helping each other out. But what we don't want to talk about is the Osage murders. What we don't want to talk about is uh, the Tulsa race massacre. What we don't want to talk about is why the educational inequity in Oklahoma City is tied to um, white flight and mm. school busing and mm. um, the institutional mechanisms we built to create to perpetuate the segregation of our schools and their ongoing inequality. Like, and so if we don't want to talk about those things because they hurt, 
they're never going never to deal with them. Sometimes you have to name a demon before you can exercise it. So I think uh, I'm being metaphorical, I, I think, right there. But the, the point here is if we're talking about like reconciliation here, I think reconciliation after trauma, after injustice, always involves naming it. Um, you know, reconciliation follows um, repentance, sometimes it follows restitution, dealing with the pain including generational pain. And until we're willing to name it and grieve for it, then there's usually not a great path forward. Yeah, so, so kind of continuing on that journey of um, this idea of lamenting over brokenness and um, just even as you acknowledge this, John Mark, this idea of generational trauma, intergenerational trauma, racial trauma, uh, just from your own, you know, experience, uh, relationships, study of this, like how how would you describe uh, intergenerational trauma or racial trauma? And, And then how does it relate to either you, your family, or the work that you're doing just to help just give a greater grasp of what we're talking about? Um, I, when I think of intergenerational trauma, I think of the, the shorter lifespans Mm. of, um, black folk. And, um, specifically when I think of Northeast Oklahoma city, I think that, uh, the, I don't know where it has gone from a few years ago, but I know there was an 18 year gap, Mm. um, life expectancy between someone who was growing up in Northeast Oklahoma City, which is where I live and, and um, is where the work that my husband and I do together is based out of versus other parts of the city and how um, the impact that that has generationally mm. of even having shorter lives and shorter time together and shorter um, opportunities to pass a legacy on to the next generation. And then when you think about the reasons behind that and um, the stresses and the lack of access to uh, healthy food and living in a food desert. I have to drive 20 minutes to get to any grocery store um, from my house. And um, and so when you're looking at all of those types of uh, things and then you're looking at the stress of how um, of finding housing or um, just having some of your basic needs met, um, it begins to eat away Mm -hmm. at your perspective of your value in a city Mm. that if I'm not valuable enough to have access to transportation, good jobs, food, Mm -hmm. then maybe I'm not valuable. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of our kids feel that, um, an excellent education. One thing that I was able to have was access growing up myself, even though we did not have financial means. Um, we had um, transportation and we had access to an excellent education, which is an equalizer mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so when I think of that and then bring mm-hmm. it home to my family and I'm having conversations with teachers because mm-hmm. a classmate has told one of my first graders years ago you can't play with us um, unless you agree to be my pet monkey. Mm. Or, you know, I'm having other conversations with the predominantly white Christian school that one of my children went to. Um, 
And I'm asking, will my child see themselves on the horizon of history as a slave first? What is your historical teaching? Because the way that they taught was from a, it was a classical education where you have an opportunity to kind of flow through history and your literature is attached to that, your science and your math, et cetera. And um, so I'm asking questions like, as you float through history, Mm -hmm. are you starting with Black people showing up on the horizon of history as slaves? And what will that mean to my son, who's the only Black student in this school? Mm -hmm. And so those are the types of things that can um, create. And if there is an understanding, which in that situation, they came back with all kinds of papers about early church fathers and, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of information, um, but it doesn't always play out on the playground. And so how we walk through those issues um, contribute to generational trauma. And so then when I'm speaking to a friend who's telling me there's no such thing as systemic racism, you know, or this is, you know, this is an issue of um, taking on a victim mentality. And I'm like, Okay, let's start at the beginning with Mm -hmm. speaking the truth in love. And then I can share some of my own stories, which stories are such a powerful way to communicate. But when I think of generational trauma, I think of great grandmother um, raising my grandmother who died when my mother was seven, Mm -hmm. my mother growing up as a single, I mean, raising me as a single mother, and then me trying to figure out what does it look like to be married? Because I come from four generations of women who either lost their husbands to death um, or whatever. Um, And so then trying to figure out what do I pass on to my daughters and how do I do that? Because I'm kind of starting it um, in my generation to try to figure out how to pass on a legacy and help them to work through things like beautiful girls being told that they should be pet monkeys mm. in their cla- by their classmates. So those are some of the mm. generational trauma thoughts that I think of, but specifically around race. two thoughts to that one of them is so being in a neighborhood now that most of the people there are at least second or third generation poverty if not more than that one of the things that is so crucial is to recognize like there's certain responses decisions that people would make that were not going to be helpful for their lives that I as a pastor as a friend as an advocate in the community was trying to figure out what was happening and how to help people that I had a default way of interpreting that decision as being just a foolish decision or, you know, an immoral response, but really it was a post-traumatic stress response. Hmm. So I, I'm talking about when marriage gets hard and then somebody throws a temper tantrum and leaves, or um, when there's financial pressure and somebody just uh, leaves their lease on their apartment complex, like, what's this going to do for the kids? I'm feeling frustrated by the decisions people are making that we're trying to help, but like, this is post-traumatic stress. Because if you grew up in an environment where there was instability all the time, where there, um, you got evicted and you had to find a place real quick to sleep, where there was food insecurity, um, where you probably were exposed to violence at a young age in one way or another, um, when those things happen, um, people are going to, you know, it's, it's going to trigger those, those, those mechanisms. And so 
for me to come in with an attitude of that wasn't a wise decision, why didn't you choose better, is not going to be helpful. This is a time where people need empathy, where people need to connect to counseling resources, and they need a lot of support. Um, and, you know, trauma-informed care for people has got to be, at, you know, at the center of anything we're doing if we're really trying to help people. So that, that's one thing to add. Mm-hmm. A second thing is you're dealing with generations of people who have a totally different way of re- relating to the social institutions that are connected to human flourishing. So if mama doesn't value taking kids to the pediatrician for well child check with the primary care physician, that doesn't mean mama doesn't care about the kid's health. It means these medical institution, this medical system mistreated my mom and my grandma. Yeah. If there's an adversarial relationship sometimes between schools and parents, that doesn't mean parents don't care about their kids' education. They care deeply about their kids' education. But um, grandma grew up in a segregated school and then grandma or mom started, you know, bust into an integrated school that then there was a riot, you know. And so it's just like, if you have that sort of generational history, confrontation with the police, you know, I, like I said, grew up in an environment where it was exposed to some level of poverty, but I had two families that loved me. We had a supportive church community and I was a white guy. I never had to worry about being racially profiled by the police. And as a matter of fact, there's been a few times, even in recent history, when I've been pulled over for some legitimate reason involving, you know, a tail light or a speed or something like that. Police officers are so nice to me. They apologize to me. I'm so sorry I pulled you over, you know. So um, that's one set of experiences. But if someone, if, you know, a kid I'm mentoring in my community reacts aggressively when a police officer is trying to talk to them, and I'm trying to say, hey, calm down, They're, they're here to help. Well, that's not what they're seeing on the news. That's not the story that his dad told him. That's not the story that he's heard from grandma. So there's a whole different and traumatic history of relating to these systems and these institutions, um, which requires a whole lot of work to, to begin rebuilding trust in the community. Scott, should you have more to add? You seem like you were about to say something. Yeah, I was just about to start yelling like, <laughs> yes, thank you for <laughs> saying those things. And I just think of how... Um, when you tell stories, again, for me, things start at home and then branch out for me. A friend said, um, your family is a microcosm of society. And Mm -hmm. I really feel like, um, that was like a specific truth for my family because we have encountered, I mean, we have every kind of personality in that, uh, team of folks. And, um, and I just, when you were describing being stopped, I was, um, I was seeing, uh, my second born being stopped um, son uh, being stopped and he was so terrified and he was holding on to the steering wheel shaking and um, that the officer was like, are you okay? It's okay. like the officer was trying to comfort him. And so when we talk about trauma and, mm-hmm. you know, the stories that and the video that we're seeing and we're mm-hmm. viewing the deaths of people um, from my Boys, they wouldn't like me calling them boys. They're my men, my mm. young men, mm. uh, my sons. They're, uh, you know, they're viewing the deaths of people who look like them and they are stepping into that experience. And honestly, an overexposure to it is traumatizing, even if it hasn't happened to you directly and you haven't experienced all of the things that you've seen and heard of just by virtue of being empathetic and caring and relating to or looking like someone who has experienced injustices and trauma can be traumatizing. And then you add that on top of your own experience. So I was, I was just echoing my amen. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Will Flourish. Consider subscribing to our podcast and following us on Instagram at all.flourish. You can also reach out to us through our website, flourishokc.com. We will flourish when we flourish together.